Welcome to Innovator Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. My name is Maureen Metcalf. I'm your host. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to solve their biggest problems and leverage their organizational opportunities. I do this through a combination of roles from executive advisor to consultant to coach. I'm also a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transform your organizations. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Today, I'm really excited about our guest, Paul Smith. He's one of the world's leading experts on organizational storyteller. He's a keynote speaker, storytelling coach, and author of the books, Sell with a Story, Parenting with a Story, and the bestseller, Lead with a Story, already in its eighth printing and available in six languages around the world. Paul is also a former consultant at Accenture and a former executive and 20-year veteran of the Procter & Gamble Company. As part of his research on effectiveness of storytelling, Paul has personally interviewed over 250 CEOs, executives, leaders, and salespeople in 25 countries, documenting over 2,000 individual stories. Leveraging those stories and interviews, Paul identified the components of effective storytelling and developed templates and tools to apply them in practice. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, Time, Forbes, The Washington Post, PR News, and Success Magazine, among others. So now let's shift to the purpose of the show in the context of a world that is changing dramatically. So Ray Kurzweil from Google suggests that the technology change this century could be 20,000 times that of the last century. So as we think about how do we as leaders keep up with this volume of change as human beings in our behaviors as leaders and how we run our organizations, it's imperative that we continue to innovate how we lead. And my hope is in each of these shows that you are able to hear something that you can implement in the next week that will give you an immediate return on the investment of time that you're spending listening to the show. So as the outcome for this show, as part of our Thought Leader series, Paul will talk about the power of story for leaders. He'll share his insights about what works, why it works, and how you will be more effective as a leader if you can master and use story as one of your skills. So Paul, welcome. I'm delighted that you were able to make time to join us. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having me on. So you've written about leading with story and selling with story along with parenting with story. Um, Let's start by explaining what you really mean by storytelling. Yeah, because that's a good question because I I think the word story and storytelling has probably uh, grown beyond a really um, useful and meaningful set of definitions in the last decade or so. It seems like just about everything now is a story. You know, our our marketing plan is a story. Our vision statement is a story. Our brand logo is a story. Everything's a story now. And and I think when everything's a story, nothing's a story, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, it, uh, it it needs to mean something more specific than that. And uh, so uh, let me get, give you an example of what I mean by a leadership story. Uh, so, for example, one of my, my favorite examples is from a colleague of mine named Jason Zoller. Um, and he, he shares a story that he heard when he was a college student 20-some-odd years ago at the University of Central Florida. 
And uh, what happened is the professor had told the class about a few years earlier, he had uh, created uh, several groups of teams among the students, and each of them had a research project for the semester. And one of those teams had a more interesting project than all the others, and that was this. It was to work for the local judge and figure out how they could improve the jury deliberation process. And so they did all the kind of things that you or I or anybody listening to this probably would have done if they were on this team. They they interviewed all the other judges in the jurisdiction. They interviewed prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys. But mostly they interviewed jurists themselves, right, people who would actually served on juries. And they asked them all the same kind of questions you or I probably would have asked. They asked them, what was the trial about and how long did the trial last and, and uh, what, were the, what was the information they were allowed to have in the jury room. And at, at the end of the semester, they concluded that really none of those things mattered. It turned out the only thing that mattered was the shape of the table in the jury room. And they concluded that jury rooms that had rectangular tables, whoever sat at the head of the table, whether it was the jury foreman or not, tended to dominate the conversation. And they felt like a, a less than robust or egalitarian debate of the facts had ensued. But in jury rooms that had round tables or oval tables, they felt like a more egalitarian debate of the facts ensued. And so probably a more fair and, and accurate verdict was rendered. So they're super excited at the end of the semester. They, they make their big presentation and recommendation to the head judge. And the judge is super excited as well to hear th- these findings. The judge immediately issues a decree. He says, in all the courthouses in my jurisdiction, Anywhere we've got any of those round tables, get rid of them. Really? Put, put in rectangular tables. Right. So I didn't just misspeak. <laughs> in, in direct contradiction to their recommendation, he said put in rectangular tables. Now, why do you think he would have done that? Just has wants a guess. to be in control, but he's not okay. in the jury rooms. He right. wants to pick who's in control? <laughs> well, sort of. What, what he wants is he wants faster verdicts. Okay, so uh-huh. the, the judge's definition of an improved jury deliberation process wasn't a more accurate one or a more fair one. It was a faster one. Right? He wanted to reduce the backlog on his court docket. All right, now um, imagine you're one of those five or six students on that team. Like, how would you feel at that point? Betrayed. Exactly, <laughs> betrayed. You'd feel awful. I mean, I'm sure they got an A on their report card. But they felt betrayed and defeated, and uh, they probably felt remorseful, and some of them probably regretted even taking part in in the whole project, right? Mm -hmm. Because here they are, these young 20-something idealistic college students thinking that this project was their way to make the world a better place, right? And and what they had done was make it a worse place in their mind. So so they they got burned, and and so here's the lesson that they learned, and the lesson that Jason wants to impress upon his new hires when uh, he's hiring them into the company he works for in a research function. And that is that it's very important to be clear on your objectives before you start your research project and not after, right? If you wait till after, you may be sorely disappointed in the result, right? Now, he could just stand up there and lecture to them and say, look, and you know, my 20 years in business tells me that you should be very clear in your objectives before you start your project, blah, 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 right? And that might work, but probably not because that kind of advice goes in one ear and out the other because it sounds like common sense. Well, of course, I should be clear on my objectives before I start my project, but people aren't all the time. And once you've heard that story, you can kind of feel in your gut the angst and remorse and regret and, as you said, betrayal that those five or six students must have felt. And so it's impossible then to – almost impossible to forget that lesson every time you start a new research project. But if you're just lectured and told and and bossed around by the boss – you can forget that very quickly. So the story, that my, my point is this is an example of a leadership story, of a story that's designed to communicate a message to get people to change their behavior, uh, which is what leadership is all about, in a way that will be 
impactful and engaging and remembered you know, for a long time, as opposed to just wagging your finger at people and telling them what to do. So, so leadership stories are supposed to be not just silly warm-up exercises or an icebreaker at the beginning of a meeting or something before you get to your, your main leadership content. Leadership stories are, are the kind of thing that can replace your normal lecturing and bossing people around and, and, and do so in a much more effective manner. So you've just given us the why. So let me repeat it back and see if there's anything you want to build on. So I should learn stories so that I can change people's behaviors, be impactful, and be remembered for a long time. The story yeah, so will be remembered, not I will be remembered. Right. And you might be remember, remembered as well. <laughs> yeah. So those are three or, three or four of, of the reasons. So that, that's an example of a story. I, I think the reason why storytelling works is an, another set of whys. You know, you can dig into this as, as far as you want. But um, I, I think the reason why stories like that are so effective is because mainly because human beings make decisions uh, really in one place in the brain on a more emotional, subconscious, and sometimes irrational basis. And then we justify those decisions later, afterwards, in, a, in, in the logic processing part of the brain. You know, th- this is what we've, we've learned from you know, the last 30 years of cognitive science. And, and if you, so if you want to influence people's opinions and decisions and behaviors, which is essentially what leadership is, it turns out you need to influence them more emotionally. And stories like the one I just told you have an emotional component to them that facts and logic and data just don't and will never have. So that's, I think, the underlying reason why um, storytelling works so well. Interesting. So it's really about brain science. Yeah, yeah. At, at its foundation, that is that is why storytelling works. I mean, that's not going to help you tell a better story. I mean, you, you know, we, we can talk about what are the components of a great story and how do you do it, but, but fundamentally, that's why. Um, it, it also does things like... It, it makes you remember facts much better. I mean, there have been a number of studies that show mm-hmm. that, um, that that facts are something like 22 times more likely to be remembered if they're embedded in a story than if they're just given to people in a list. And and you don't have to believe any of the studies because you can kind of prove it to yourself right now. You know, for example, you know, you and anybody listening to this right now knows that by, by this time tomorrow, you're not going to remember this list of three or four reasons why storytelling works. But you will remember the story of the jury tables. Right. That's why, and, yeah, that's why I'm taking notes. Yeah, and you know that next week and next month and probably a year from now, you know that you could probably tell that story mm-hmm. and get most of the facts right. But you wouldn't remember any of the list of the three or four things that we're talking about right now. Right? So that's, that's the power of storytelling. So then let's tie that to leadership challenges. So, so again, you've said a little bit about, as a leader, why I do this. So people can emotionally connect and remember what I'm trying to get them to do. So I'm not bossing them. I'm encouraging, motivating, persuading. So what kind of leadership challenges can storytelling help leaders navigate more successfully? Yeah, so this is where the the research for the book really paid off because I assumed going into this uh, that there was five or six situations where a leader might find him or herself in where they needed to tell a story. And and the reason I assume that is because most of the literature before had said there's five or six reasons why a leader would ever need to tell stories. And so I just okay. believed it. And so I, I, I start interviewing uh, literally uh, hundreds of CEOs and executives and leaders at companies all over the world and and finding out when they're telling stories and what stories they're telling and and did they work or not. And I'm kind of, re- I, I did it to reverse engineer my way into what is it that makes a story effective and uh, a leadership story not effective. But what I also found out, of course, was when they're telling stories. And I ended up with a list of 21 different 
leadership challenges where leaders need to tell stories. And and the truth is, I, I don't think that there's only 21, but that's about how many, that's how many I got to when my publisher said stop, right? <laughs> like that's, we can't fit any more in, into a book. Um, so it, it's things like setting a vision and, and getting people committed to your goals and leading change and defining what success and failure looks like in the organization. Um, but it's also more environmental things like defining the culture and the values of the organization or getting people to value diversity and inclusion or just follow the rules of, of the organization. Yeah. Um, some of the more obvious ones, I think, are to inspire and motivate the team or have people b- build their courage, uh, you know, that they'll have, um, you know, some odds of success or help them be passionate about their work or maybe just teach them how to do their job, providing coaching and feedback, that kind of thing. Um, but even things like getting people to be more creative and innovative um, or get them to be to, to delegate more or just to earn the respect of your colleagues. I mean, so, you know, and I probably just mentioned about 15 of the 21. There's there, there's more, but I'm convinced there's more and more and more. It, it, it uh-huh. amazes me. Every time I turn around, I'm finding a new use um, for for storytelling in a leadership or sales or a parenting context. You know, I used it, uh, I was leading a change initiative uh, with a large company several years ago, and they were a drug manufacturer, and we got someone, uh, they were, the issue was quality uh, of a specific drug, and we got someone to tell her story about how, coincidentally, the drug they were making uh, was used to to treat one of her brothers who had terminal cancer and one who was recently diagnosed. And by the time she got done telling the story uh, about how this drug and its high quality would likely save the life of her brother, it was a very different conversation than thou shalt produce quality stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, that it has been incredibly powerful to help people connect their work to the impact. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a, a very common use of storytelling that, uh, that people maybe don't know that they're using it for that until they find themselves telling a story and they go, Oh yeah, I guess, uh, I guess that did work. Yeah. It, it, at least in our case, it was a significant impact. So, Paul, you've got a story in your first book about the former CEO of Procter & Gamble, Bob McDonald. Can you share uh, that one as an example of storytelling to hold people accountable for business results? Yeah, so so Bob, of course, uh, he, he was the CEO of P&G. Now he's, uh, I believe, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs in the Obama administration. And um, he, he learned one of his most important lessons about being accountable for the results that you've been, you're committed to literally 40 years ago when he was a, a cadet, a freshman cadet at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And he said, what they, what you learn very quickly in your first week there is that there's only four answers you're allowed to give to any question asked to you by an upperclassman or an officer. And those four answers are, yes, sir, no, sir, I don't understand, sir, and no excuse, sir. And he said, so for example, you know, I'm, the whistle blows and I've got to run out in formation in my, you know, dress uniform and, and I'm standing there at attention and somebody runs by and splashes mud all over my trousers and, you know, one of the upperclassmen comes by and gets in my face and, and says like, McDonald, why is there mud all over your trousers? You know, and he says, okay, so I've, I've got to think through the four things I'm allowed to say. Um, yes, sir. Well, that would just be restating the obvious. So that's not very helpful. I could say, no, sir. But that's like lying. I mean, it's obvious that I am right. That's that's not helpful. I could say I don't don't understand, sir. But that would just make me look like an idiot. And he said I was doing a good enough job of that my first week already. So he said so. I was stuck with number four. No excuse. No excuse. Sir. 
And he said, that turned out to be the most powerful one of the four ever. And he, he said, you know, he, he relearned that lesson uh, as a young parent when he and his wife had their first child, their, uh, their daughter named Jenny. He said when she was about six or seven years old, we were having trouble getting her to clean her room. And uh, so she wouldn't do it, she wouldn't do it, she wouldn't do it. And, he, and as first-time parents, they, they consulted all the Dr. Spock books or whatever. And they, they literally had scripted out how they were going to admonish their little Jenny for <laughs> this infraction. And they, they walk up to her room with their – both of them had their scripts in hand. And they're ready to launch into this you know, diatribe or whatever. And he says, Jenny, your mother and I would like to talk to you about the condition of your room. And she looks up at him and with all the seriousness of a West Point cadet says, no excuse, Dad. It won't happen again. Oh, wow. And, and I mean, he's just, he's stymied. I mean, everything he's written on his <laughs> script is now completely useless, right? I mean, because there's no need to say anything because she's taken uh, accountability for the problem and promised to, to fix it, right? And he said, that is exactly what that answer does for you. It, it, it tells the boss, if it's at work or the parent at home, that, look, I get it. I know I'm responsible for doing this, and I didn't do it, and I'm still committed. I'm going to do it. But and that's what it does for the boss. It lets them know you're still going to get this done. They don't have to reconvince you to do it. But what it does for you is it spares you the chewing out. Right? There is no reason to chew anybody out after they've said those words. And so it's just this brilliant tool to get people to be, to hold themselves accountable for work. And see, he used that with all of his presidents at the company, and I'm sure he does it at the Veterans Administration. I mean, it's just a brilliant tool. Now, he could just tell people. If I ask you why your business results aren't what they are, just tell me no excuse. Uh, that won't do it, right? But he tells them all that story about West Point and then the second story about Jenny, and then they get it. And it just it, it just works amazingly well no matter where you are. You know, I'm thinking as you say that how helpful it would be with some of my clients who respond with defensiveness. I didn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't, I shouldn't, yeah, it wasn't wasn't fair. my fault. <laughs> the dog ate my homework. <laughs> the economy went south. Our competitors did something awful. You know, yeah, like, you know, that tells them uh, I don't want to hear that. Well, yeah, and so this story would be beautiful in helping to eliminate the defensiveness, which right. serves no good purpose. Well, you're welcome to share that with your clients. Thank you. I probably will next week for anyone who has not heard the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what separates a good story from a simple or a great story from a simply good or average or in my case possibly boring one? Oh, yeah. So I I think and this probably doesn't just go for leadership or sales stories, but any story. I mean a a movie or a novel or 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 whatever. Um th- three things that any great story is going to have is a hero you care about, a villain you're afraid of, and an epic struggle between them. Right. I mean, I think Star Wars with Darth Vader and the bad guy and the Luke Skywalker good guy and the struggle between them. Right. I mean, those are the classic hallmarks of a compelling story. Now, that definitely sounds a bit Hollywood. So if you're to translate that into business business language, the hero you care about would simply be a relatable main character. You know, somebody that you can relate to, not just somebody, not the always the CEO of the company or a football hero or, you know, I mean, somebody that you can relate to whose job you might see yourself in. That the villain that we're afraid of becomes a relevant challenge. Uh, the, the kind, so your audience needs to see that the hero in the story is facing a challenge that they might face themselves. Or maybe they have faced and they know they're going to face again. So a relevant challenge. And then the, the epic battle between them just becomes an honest struggle. I mean, a, a, a business or leadership or sales story, you've got to be able to see some kind of a struggle. It, it, everything can't work out rosy 
with no trouble at all. Or if 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 there's no struggle, then there's no story, right? Um, but for for a business story like this, you you have to add one more thing to that, and that's simply a worthy lesson, right? If you're telling stories that are interesting and engaging, but there's no lesson or 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 action that people would be prompted to take as a result of it, then all you've done is entertained them, right? And and that's that's cheap and easy and and really won't get you much other than you know they, they might like you, <laughs> but but you're not going to get what you need out of them. So the the story needs to be well chosen so that there's a worthy lesson for them to learn. So then walk us through the example of um, the story with Jenny. Is she the hero or the villain? So She's the with, hero? Well, so with Jenny, um, well, well uh, let's back it up one to, to Bob at, at West Point, right? So he's the main character. Um, okay. Somebody has come by and splashed mud on his trousers. That's the, the challenge in the story. So if, if I were to walk you through the... Uh, the structure of a story, it starts with the context, and uh, where, which is where you learn who the hero is, uh, then the challenge, which is the problem that they confront, that's where you, that's the villain, then the struggle between them, and then the resolution. So for, for Bob, um, the, the challenge was when somebody splashed the mud on his trousers, right? So that was, in, in essence, the villain of the, pro, of, of the story. His conflict was his internal struggle with what to do about it. Now, do, do I answer number one, number two, number three, number four, right? The yes or no, sir, I don't know, sir, whatever. He finally decided on number four. And that was, in fact, the resolution to the story was that he decided to answer the fourth way, no excuse, sir. Then at the end of a story, th- then it's time for the lesson and the recommended action. So the lesson that he learned was that the, the best answer to give in cases where somebody's told you you're doing something wrong is no excuse, sir. And the recommended action is that you, and now that you've heard the story, you should be doing that too. You should be taking more accountability to more responsibility for the things that you're accountable for, right? So, um, so in that case, the, the villain wasn't a person. It was a situation. The situation was that he got mud splashed on his trousers. And, and yes, he was the hero or the – I probably shouldn't use the word hero. That's probably throwing you off a little bit. Hero in, in my context really means the protagonist of the story, the person the story is about, Right? You, you could end up being the bad guy in your own story, but you're still the protagonist. You're still the main character of the story, even if you do something okay. bad. Right, So Bob was the main character in the story, and the bad guy was the splashing of the mud on his trousers. Right? And his conflict, uh, the struggle, was his internal struggle with what to do about it. How do I decide to respond to the situation? Make sense? Cool. Yep, got it. So, yes, I'm diligently taking notes. Um, and I assume some of our listeners are doing the same as I'm thinking about how to apply something interesting tomorrow. Okay, so as leaders, we're selling. So, exactly, um, so what exactly is a sales story? So, I'm selling ideas, projects, getting people to change, um, getting people to be accountable. <laughs> Can you give us an example of um, how to do a sales pitch as a leader? Yeah, so so for sales, um, the, the structure of a story and those kind of things are going to be largely the same. You still need a, a hero and a villain and a resolution and a struggle and all those kind of things. The, you're going to be telling stories about different things with a different objective in sales. So, um, for example, I'll, let me give you an example of a of a sales story. So and this was something that actually happened to me last year. So my my wife and I were at uh, Coney Island in Cincinnati, Ohio, at an art fair, 
And my wife's an artist. She loves uh, art. And uh, the truth is, I was just kind of there carrying the bag, walking behind her and going where she wanted to go. And she was looking for a a piece of art for one of our our son's bathroom at home. And she gets to one booth of this uh, underwater photographer. He's this guy named Chris Goog. And he just takes these mesmerizing pictures of sea anemones and coral reefs. And, you know, you've seen these kind of things. They're just just beautiful. And she's flipping through his pictures, and she just gets really emotionally attached to this one picture that, to me, looked about as out of place as a pig in the ocean. And the reason is because it literally was a picture of a pig in the ocean, right? Which just made no sense to me at all. I just thought it was silly. And so she's talking to him about it, and when it finally got to be my turn to ask a question, I was like, dude, (laughs) what's with the pig in the ocean? Like, how did you get the pig to swim in the ocean to get that silly picture? And that, Marine, is when the magic started. He said, oh, yeah, it was the craziest thing. See, that picture was taken off the, just off the beach of an uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently, a few years ago, a local entrepreneur decided to start a pig farm, I guess, to raise for bacon. And, uh, and he, was, I guess, was being cheap. And he found this island that nobody lived on where he could keep the pigs for free. And he said, but if you look in the picture, look back behind the pig up on the beach. He said, what do you see up there? And I kind of squinted my eyes and looked at it and said, well, not much other than maybe some cactus. And he said, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, pigs don't <laughs> like cactus. <laughs> right? They're probably so, not very tasty. Right. So, yeah, the entrepreneur had not thought very far ahead on his plan, right? And he said the good news was, though, not long after that, a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island started boating his kitchen refuse every night over to Big Major K and dumping it a few dozen yards offshore. So pretty soon, these hungry little pigs start smelling the food, and one of them's like brave enough to to brave the ocean to go get it because you know he's starving. Well, and then pig number two and pig number three goes and swims, and so you know here it is, two or three generations of pig later, and all of the pigs on Big Major K can swim. And he said, <laughs> in fact, they they they've been so well trained uh, with this food getting dumped offshore that anytime a boat approaches the beach, they swim right out to it, just assuming they're going to get fed. He said, I didn't even have to get out of my boat to take this picture. He said, normally I've got to get all the scuba equipment on and it's this big ordeal and takes me hours. He said, I just leaned over out of the boat and took a picture, right? It was awesome. Easiest picture I ever took. So, of course, before he's even done telling the story, I've got my credit card out and I'm like, we'll take it. Right? <laughs> you know, but Because honestly, two minutes earlier, that, that picture was worth nothing to me. But two minutes after that, after he told the story, I totally wanted to, to buy, the, buy the picture because now it wasn't just a a picture. It was a story, right? A story I could tell other people every time they come to my house. That's cool. I, I'm a big art collector, and most of my art also has stories, whether it was uh, t- today's the day after 9-11, something I bought at a 9-11 benefit, or um, a glass blower who had this super cool toothbrush that was six feet tall, and the bristles were made out of glass. And so he told the whole story about something that happened as he was getting older and dealing with oral hygiene. But yeah, those are things I remember. And I end up similarly buying art from those people because right. they're more interesting than yeah. a poster that's the right colors. Right. And of course, it doesn't just work with art. And, and in fact, that's that's just an example of one kind of, of sales story. I, I, I lay out in the book 25 different types of stories that all salespeople or anybody in an influential type role needs to be able to tell. And that particular one is, uh, I call it a value adding story. So it's a story that makes the thing that you're selling more valuable to the person buying it. But there are other types of sales stories that you ought to be able to tell. 
you know, like explaining what it is I do for a living easily for your prospective buyer to understand or, um, or, or stories about, you know, who you are and why you do what you do, which is part of the rapport building uh, component of a, of a, a sales process. Um, stories about the founding of your company and the, the the invention of the product that you're selling, um, and you can actually have stories in a sales in the main body of the sales pitch itself. And those would be stories like um, a story to illustrate the problem that your product or service is designed to fix, right? Or a success story, which is that same story except with the added ending that somebody you know, bought your product and now they're happy because it solved their, their problem. So you can see how, you know, each of these, you know, you know, this is, that's like four or five of the, of the 21, but you know, there, there are more creating a sense of urgency to, to close the sale or, um, or getting people to be more loyal after the sale. So there's a, there's a specific type of sales story in each of the elements or in each of the phases of a full sales process that, that most salespeople really need to have in their repertoire. And again, so I use these in sales and many of us as leaders are selling to our clients, whether it's a relationship selling that I'm the key relationship manager. Right. Uh, so they're not just for sales, quote, salespeople, but all right. of us really need to know how to do this. Yeah. Now, now, admittedly, I wrote the I wrote the this latest book, Sell with a Story, specifically for professional salespeople, and I wrote the first one, Lead with a Story, specifically for leaders. But there are clearly, you know, half at least of the stories laid out in the Sell with a Story work not just for salespeople, but for anybody in a leadership position who, who part of their leadership is they have to convince people to to do something or buy something or 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 to bring in new clients or something. I mean, most of us, when you get to a certain level of leadership, it's not just about uh, leading a, a a department of getting the payables done or something, you're 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 actually responsible for the the long term success and health of the business, which almost always has some kind of a revenue component to it. Yeah, it seems that at least in my role, there's a big part of that. It's it's helping influence people. It, so part of it's keeping them motivated and engaged and and heading in the same direction that I see as our vision. Right. Yeah, so some of that feels like I'm selling when I'm going in one direction and they're going in a different one. No, that's okay. We've been selling since we convinced our mom at the age of five to give us, you know, 50 cents for the ice cream truck coming down the street, right? (laughs) it's, It's just a part of life. Yeah, I remember that ice cream truck. So how long should a leadership story be versus a sales story? Is there a distinction? Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things I, I found out in, in doing the research. I, you know, with uh, probably 250 or 300 executives and salespeople and leaders that I've, I've interviewed in the last six years, I probably collected eight or ten stories from each of them. So if you do that math, oh, wow. literally probably over 2,000 stories I've documented in the last you know five or six years. So I've got a pretty good database now of of, of how long these stories should be. And what I found was <clears throat> for leadership stories. The average story length is about four minutes when told orally, and and humans speak at about 150 words a minute. So um, so and they can range from say three to five minutes is probably kind of full standard deviation around how long these stories should be. So maybe 450 words to 750 words if you were writing them, but speaking them, it's it's around four minutes for a leadership story. And then when I went in to do the research for sales, I my assumption was that sales stories would be a little bit shorter. But I had no idea how much, and so after I'd finished writing the book and writing all the you know all the stories up, I kind of went to do the math, and it turned out they are they are shorter by exactly half. 
So sales stories on average are half the length of a leadership story. And, and the reason I think that makes sense is because when you're the boss and you're telling a leadership story to your organization, you're in a more forgiving situation, both hierarchically and socially and, and physically, right? So nobody's going to tell the boss to shut up and move on, right? Right? Or, or and you're sitting in your office probably or their office or the lunchroom where you work and, and you see these people every day that, you know, you're, and you're going to see them tomorrow. There, there's no hurry, right? But for salespeople, they're talking to a buyer who's probably got 30 other sales calls they got to sit through that day. They're, they're in a hurry. You've only got 30 minutes in their office before you fly home to Poughkeepsie or wherever, and you're not going to see them again for three months. So every second counts in sales calls. Uh, and so that, that's kind of my explanation for why I think it is that these sales stories tended to be uh, half the length of a, of a leadership story. And more compelling or just tighter? Um. Yeah, I wouldn't say more compelling. I think they're they're obviously shorter, um, mm-hmm. and uh, but but I, but I wouldn't say necessarily more compelling. Um, you you can you want to have different versions of each story. Like you want to have a thirty second version of a story. Uh, you know, in fact, I, I I coach people in the in this this last book on on sales stories. To you want to have a a one minute version of your story, a two minute version and a four minute version, right? So a short, an average and a long version. And the, the longer ones are going to give you more of a chance to be more compelling, to give more reasons why, you know, they should follow your advice or whatever. Um, but sometimes you're going to be in a situation where you don't have that much time or they're in a hurry or whatever. And so you need to be able to modulate between the long, medium and short. But on average, these sales stories just tended to be shorter. And salespeople have just learned to tell their stories in a more succinct manner, but I think because they've had to. So you're saying for salespeople, it's good to have basically a, a list or a repertoire uh, yeah. of stories that I've practiced. Yeah, not just salespeople, leaders too. In fact, that's one of the main reasons why I wrote both of these books is I wanted to give my readers a database to start with, right? So there, there's literally over a hundred stories in the the lead with a storybook leadership stories, and almost all of them you can add to your repertoire and tell them to other people. Right? Some of them are are so personal that it just wouldn't make sense coming from you, but most of them are there for that reason, for you to start your database of leadership stories. Uh, the, for the the sales one, they're they're all going to be unique. Like you can't tell my sales story because you don't sell my product. So. That doesn't make sense. You need to build your own repertoire. But yes, mm-hmm. uh, salespeople and leaders need to have a repertoire of stories in their brain ready to whip out at a moment's notice when they need it. And, and, and yes, you probably should spend some time practicing them as well if you know you're going to be telling them. Okay, so that brings us to an interesting question. If I'm using your story, is it okay to make up a story? Do I reference Bob McDonald? I I obviously didn't go to West Point, so I can't say it was me. Right. Yeah, yeah, good question. So so um you can make up a story, but only in only one condition, right? And that condition is that you tell your audience that you made it up. Right now, if you tell the Bob McDonald story, you're not making up the story. That's a true story. That really happened. Okay. But it's just not you. So it's like I, I'm not Bob McDonald either, right? But when I told you the story, I said, here's a story about a guy named Bob McDonald. And then I tell you the story. So it's a completely true story. It's just not about me. And most of your stories, by the way, shouldn't be about you. Like, What would you think of me if every story you ever heard me tell was about me? I think I was an arrogant SOB, right? <laughs> right so, and you don't want to be that really person. really funny. 
Well, I, I suppose, but even if they were really funny, if every story I ever told you was about me, I mean, how self-centered would I have to be? <laughs> and so you, 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 you just should not have every, and in fact, I don't know anybody whose every story they would ever tell would be about them, but you, you need to have stories about other people or you would come across that way. And some of the stories about you need to be ones where you made a mistake. Right, so you're not the hero; you're the goat in the story, right? I mean, leaders want people want to work for a leader who will admit their own mistakes and tell you about them, so that you won't have to make that mistake yourself, right? Well, and for for many of us, those seem to be the real. That seems to be what is more compelling yeah. and true, right? We yeah. are, we we seem to be taught to cover up our mistakes, and yet, to your point. Where I am more compelling, especially with grad students, is talking about where I did something that went off the rails. Uh, and clearly, I'm still successful, so I'm not an idiot. But right. boy, did I do some things that I would not want published. Yeah, right. But you don't mind telling them in a group of five people as a personal story <laughs> over the water cooler, right? Yeah. And, and, and people want to work for a boss like that who cares more about their growth and development than they, the boss cares about their own personal ego, right? That's the kind of boss you want to work for. Yeah, so that's a great point that some of the stories have to be where I am vulnerable. Yes, Absolutely. And, and again, back to the formula that there is a story, there's, there's a lesson, there's an ask of them or a, a suggestion that they do something different than they're doing now, the action lesson. Yeah, so, well, on that, um, if you tell a great story, they will learn the right lesson anyway. And in fact, that's one of the mm. benefits of, of telling stories is that when you're done, you don't have to beat them over the head with, now, so like I told you, Please put all those round tables into that, you know, whatever, you know, or please buy my picture of this pig. I mean, if you tell a great story, it will create the behavior that you're after. Um, it, but if if you see that your audience didn't get it, then certainly you have an opportunity at the end to clarify, here's the lesson that I learned when this happened to me or when I first heard this story. Or here's, here's what I would do if I were you, as opposed to just telling them what to do at the end. Because if you're just mm-hmm. going to boss people around – don't waste your time telling stories. Like that's the the whole purpose for telling stories is so that you don't have to boss people around. You will inspire them to do the right thing on their own accord. Which makes perfect sense. And again, back to Jenny, I don't have to tell you to do something. <clears throat> I, I've given you the example where right. it works. Right. Okay, so what are some of the most common mistakes you see? Yeah, so th- there are a lot. Um, uh, uh, probably the the first one you're likely to see is right at the beginning of, of a story. People don't know how to start their stories. In fact, that's one of the most common questions I get in the training classes that I teach is, how do I kick off my story? And it's because you know people get nervous when they're starting to tell a story where they don't get nervous if they're going to give you their opinion or tell you the results of their analysis or do the whatever else it is that we normally do at work. But when we tell a story, we get kind of nervous and we there's this nervous patter around about oh the story and well here's how the well okay so here's how the story goes so so the story starts well well no okay so here's how it goes right i mean so th- here's two things not to do never apologize or ask permission to tell a story so this is the most common mistake i guess i see people do right off the bat and you've seen this happen in meetings all the time you've been in a meeting five or six other people in the room somebody raises their hand and says I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, can I just tell a quick story? I promise it'll just take a minute. 
right? Now, what does that communicate to the rest of the people listening about how important you think the story is? Or my sense of insecurity. Right. So either you're insecure about you or you're insecure about the story. One of the two, or maybe both. The bottom neither line are is, helpful. Neither of those things are good. They're not helpful to you. So, so don't apologize or ask permission to tell a story, right? I mean, okay. leaders don't ask permission to lead, right? They just lead. Never ask permission or apologize for telling a leadership story. Unless you really don't believe that the story is very good, in which case, please Shut don't up. tell it. Yeah, <laughs> get back to the bullet points on slide number 72. But mm-hmm. if you do think it's important, just tell it. The other thing I would say that people people make a mistake is is they, they tell people before they tell them a story that they're going to tell them a story, right? They'll say, okay, well, hey, uh, okay, so let me just tell you the story, right? So how would you react if if you and I were in a meeting Say Monday morning, we're five or six people in a room. I come in to kick off the meeting, and I so I say, okay, uh, well, let's get this meeting started. And um, I, well, I thought I'd kick it off uh, by telling you a story. Wasted Honestly, words, exactly. Well, those words I've said are wasted. But tell me, how excited are you to hear about what's going to come out of my mouth next? Honestly, yeah, I may be more excited about your story than your slides. Well, maybe, but but, but, but <laughs> I want you to put yourself in this situation. I've just come into the room, and I've said. Well, I thought I'd get this meeting started off by telling you a story. I mean, yeah, like blah, really? blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's just what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, can you just skip the story and get to the facts or the data or the point? Or I mean, we got, yeah. you know, th- time's burning here, right? Like nobody wants to listen to a story when you tell them you're going to tell them a story. Right? I mean, children do, mm-hmm. but not. But we're grownups, right? I mean, it's it's like a it's like a five year old kid telling him it's time to stop playing and come in and take a bath, right? They they never want to do it, but once they're in the bath and they're having fun with the rubber ducky, they don't want to get out. It's the same with grown ups and stories. No grown up ever wants to to at work during the workday wants to listen to a story, but once you're telling them a story and it's a good one, they love it and they don't want to get out, right? So don't don't ruin it for yourself by telling them up front. I'm going to tell you a story, right? So imagine it's that Monday morning, and instead of saying that, I say, hey, I wanted to get this meeting kicked off, and you know, I noticed something really important happened last week, and it's completely changed how I think about running this department. I thought I'd tell you about that. Now, now, Maureen, what do you think about how interested are you in hearing what I have to say next? Because you've started this way, I am more engaged. Right. Uh, now, in both cases, I'm going to tell you exactly the same story. But in the first case where I said, I'm going to tell you a story, your eyes are rolling already. I can see them through the microphone, Maureen, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. But if I just tell you, hey, something really important just happened and it's really affected me, I want to tell you about that. And I can't wait to hear it, right? So that's the way you should start off your stories is just, and I call that a hook. I've got a whole chapter on the hook in, in, in this latest book because so many people butcher that first sentence that really is either the death knell of the entire story or gets your audience so engaged they want to listen to every word out of your mouth. So that, that, that first sentence really is important. So let's shift then to what stories, business or personal, have especially touched, influenced, or inspired you? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, there's one that is responsible for me being here today. Um, as opposed to back in my old job at, at Procter and Gamble. So I, I like like you said earlier, I spent 20 years at P and G and had had written the first book and had fancied myself an author and a speaker someday. But you know that that's not a very uh, financially secure thing to do when you have a uh, family and kids to get through college and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was struggling with the decision of of do I quit my my corporate gig 
with the steady paycheck and the benefits and all that kind of stuff and try and do this for a living. And I'd convinced myself I wanted to, but I just didn't have the guts. And I finally decided I'm, I'm never too old to learn from somebody older and wiser. So I literally um, asked my dad, who was 80 years old at the time, for advice. But but I, I, I can't talk to him on the phone anymore because he's, he's 80 and he's hard of hearing. So I have to write him letters. And so I wrote him a letter and I told him my situation. And I was hoping he'd write me back and just give me some advice. Like either, absolutely, son, you should go pursue your dream. There's nothing more important. I think you can do it. You know, give me a pep talk. Or tell me, are you insane? I mean, you're 45 years old. Just wait another few years and you can retire and then go play around with that silly, you know, pipe dream or whatever. Like I just, I assumed he would tell me one of these things and I was, I was thinking about just doing whatever he told me, but he didn't do that. He didn't give me advice. He, he, you know, as fate would have it, he just wrote me back and told me a story about himself when he was five years old that I'd never heard before. And neither had any of my siblings. He said, when I was five years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. He said, I wanted to be a singer. You know, like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr., right? I mean, he's 80. That's his, his genre. And he said, and I knew that for sure on the first day of the first grade. He said, I was five years old. Um, and the teacher asked us all on that first day if anybody had any special talent, you know, like dancing or magic tricks or something. And he said, I raised my hand and I said, I can sing. You know, despite the fact that he, he'd never sung in front of anybody other than his mom in the kitchen before. But he said, I raised my hand and I said, I can sing. And so, of course, what, what do you think she did? She made him sing. Absolutely. She said, all right, well, Bobby, get up and sing us a song. So little five-year-old Bobby stood up and he said, I belted out my favorite song right there, acapella in front of everybody. And he said, I nailed it. He said, I got all the words and the melody right. I was so proud. And he said, when I was done, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. Like my first standing ovation, my first time to ever sing in front of an audience. And he said, unfortunately, that turned out not just to be the first time I ever sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time I ever sang in front of an audience. He said, the truth is, I just never had the courage to pursue that. And he said, son, that was 75 years ago. And there's not a month that goes by that I have not regretted that decision. And he said, someday you're going to, you know, as if that wasn't enough. He said, someday you're going to wake up and you're going to be 80 years old like me. And it's going to be too late. And he, he closed this letter that I'm just like, you know, shaking, reading at this point. He closed the letter by saying, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And I mean, oh, tick tock, right? And he was 80. So literally, Maureen, two days later, I walk into my boss's office. I resign from my 20-year career to do this for a living. Absolutely the best decision I've ever made. It was three years ago. Haven't looked back. And I, I'm sure I would have done this at some point, but I would not have done it that day if it were not for my dad's story. So we are at the end of our time. That is a beautiful story. I'm going to share the um, website, www.executiveinsight16.com. You can hear Paul present. Uh, Paul, what also is your, um, your website? Yeah, leadwithastory.com. You can get uh, both, uh, both books there. Great. Thank you, everyone, to our listeners. I hope you do pick up Paul's books, and I hope you've heard something today that you can apply in your work in the next week. Come up with a story, test it out, and see the difference between how you persuade with story and or without story. Thank you very much, and join us next week. <laughs> 